Hello and welcome all. My name is Marissa and you are listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Welcome to episode 7. Thank you all very much for sticking with me this far in. Hopefully, we still got a long journey ahead of us yet as we take this walk through the early days of Iron Man in the Marvel Universe. In this episode, we'll focus on the two stories covered in Tales of Suspense numbers 48 and 49, where we see the first full and complete overhaul and redesign of Iron Man's armor, initially designed to combat a troublesome foe, and see the armor take on its famous color scheme in the process, followed by his first full story wearing said armor, where he has a harrowing aerial battle against an uncanny opponent. Let me know if you see what I did there. If you know, you know. So, grab your favorite cozy beverage, read along, or simply listen wherever you happen to be. And let's see what's in store next for dear old Shellhead. Part 1. The New Iron Man vs. The Puppet Master's Copycat Our first story is the tale told to us first published in TOS number 48. The new Iron Man battles the mysterious Mr. Doll. The issue is cover dated December 1963 and has a release date of September 10th, 1963, and is credited as written by Stanley, pencils by Steve Dicko, yes, Spidey fans, you heard that right, inked by Dick Ayers, and lettered by Sam Rosen. This issue is notable in that it is one of a very, very small handful of issues that did go at work on Iron Man, including the previous issue we discussed last episode, and considering what will come out of it, this one ends up being pretty significant, even though the story itself isn't really all that much to write home about. A short summary is as follows. Following an opening splash page of Iron Man seemingly at the mercy of the eponymous Mr. Doll, Our story begins proper on page two, with Pepper informing Tony that a shipment of materials he was expecting has just been called off, and Tony decides to go and see the guy himself, taking one of his sports cars and, once again, not enlisting happy services as a driver. You know, the thing he pays him for. And happy wondering, rightfully so, why Tony even keeps him around. Poor guy. Don't worry, happy. He'll get your due. Eventually. As Tony arrives at the estate of the alleged wealthy steel tycoon, this mysterious Mr. Carter, he notices a shady figure sneaking around the grounds and decides it's time for Iron Man to do a little investigating. Armoring up, he pursues the guy further into the grounds, effectively trespassing his own darn self, and hears someone crying for help. He follows the cries, and through a high-floor open window, sees the aforementioned Mr. Carter on the ground in great distress, at the mercy of the mysterious stranger, and begging that he's already cancelled his contracts with Stark and to please let him go. Iron Man, of course, doesn't stand for this and goes at the intruder, who is none other than Mr. Doll, so-called because he possesses a voodoo doll that he can shape to look like anyone and uses it to inflict terrible pain, so much so that he can coerce the person to do whatever he wants. And of course, he can also get the doll to look like Iron Man, which effectively puts him out of commission, 
and allows Mr. Doyle to get away with his current mission of getting Carter to do his bidding. Realizing the doll's influence doubles the strain on his body and his heart, which is already under duress from the weight of the armor. Upon returning to his workshop, Tony decides to completely redesign the armor to be sleeker and lighter, yet just as powerful and with even more capabilities, and even updates the look, adding a touch of red in with the gold coloring for a more dynamic appearance. Just after redesigning his armor, a critical message comes in from Pepper, who is currently talking with the police, and they have informed her that Mr. Dahl has put out a threat against Tony, similar to the one against Carter. Tony agrees to act as a decoy to lure him in, which gives him an opportunity to both apprehend Mr. Dahl and test out his newly redesigned armor. In order to sneak away, however, he successfully sweet-talks the officers guarding him into leaving him alone in a locked vault with Pepper who is thrilled that she finally gets to spend some alone time with her boss, who she likes a little bit too much, and does she not understand how inappropriate this is? The power dynamic situation alone is a problem, something that I think Tony actually kind of understands as he's actually overwhelmed by her approaches. However, it's all a ruse in order to sneak out a secret door to change it to Iron Man, leaving Pepper alone in the vault. Pepper will remember this. Tony faces Mr. Doll again as Iron Man, but Mr. Doll isn't faced by his change of appearance, as he can just mold Doll to look like the new Iron Man. Somehow, the lighter build allows him to withstand the strain, yet he plays along like he's under Mr. Doll's command. Mr. Doll then, after villain-splaining his origin a bit, changes his doll to look like Tony instead in order to make him submit to his demands. Of course, Tony is Iron Man, so this is a problem. He musters his resolve to bear the strain in order to not give himself away. Mr. Daw orders Iron Man out of the room and, returning to his private lab, Tony locks the door and begins crafting the tool he'll need to defeat Mr. Daw, temporarily disconnecting the artificial pacemaker built into his armor in order to not feel the pain while he works but at the risk of his shrapnel-ridden heart giving out on him if it isn't reconnected in time. With the hastily constructed gadget completed, he busts into his office where Mr. Doll is and uses the device. It isn't really clear what it is or how it works. That information was apparently not relevant enough to tell us, but the device somehow reconstructs the doll to look like its wielder instead, startling Mr. Doll and making him drop it which of course causes him to drop to the floor helpless his own self. With Mr. Doll incapacitated, Iron Man leaves him to the authorities and returns to his workshop to change back into Tony, then meets up with Happy, who naturally asks, Hey, whatever happened to Pepper? I thought she was with you. It seems Tony has completely forgotten about leaving Pepper in the vault. Oops. The men return to the vault to find a rightly cheesed-off Pepper Potts, who is furious at being forgotten so callously. In a huff, she stomps past them and even blows off Happy's invitation to a movie to make her feel better. The final panel of the story shows her storming off with her back towards us as the men, completely confounded, watch her leave in awe. Happy not able to figure out why she's so upset, and Tony stating that she's in a class all by herself.
the main attraction. As mentioned before, the main attraction of this issue is the major overhaul to Iron Man's design. This is the very first time we see Iron Man in his iconic red and gold colors that we associate with him today. Nowadays, artist Steve Ditko is mostly known for his work on Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. However, very few know that he is also responsible for codifying the most iconic appearance of Iron Man as we know him. Well, I would imagine my fellow Iron fans know, but that's beside the point. The highlight of the entire issue is the full breakdown and suit-up sequence on pages 8 through 10. Each panel details a specific aspect of the armor and its construction, punched up with the usual dramatic hyperbole of 60s Marvel comics. Last but not least, famously, the helmet would be redesigned numerous times. In this first iteration, Ditko gives the helmet open eye sockets so we can see Tony's expression through his mask, as well as his baby blue eyes, which do admittedly look bizarre if you only know brown-eyed MCU Tony, but you'll be surprised how quickly you get used to blue-eyed comic-verse Tony, to the point where when his eyes are recolored accidentally in later issues, it looks like an obvious mistake, even in post-MCU stories. The mouth section has these little grate-like slots, making it look more vent-like than it will ultimately end up, and the upper head section of the mask giving the armor its nickname of the horned armor, named for the little points at the top, or horns, or cat ears as I like to call them personally, as that's more the image that it gives me for some reason. So, if you ever hear me in the future reference the cat ear armor, this is the one I'm talking about. Every armor redesign going forward will use the Ditko cat ear armor as the baseline, making this first appearance iconic and crucial to the history of Iron Man, even though the story itself is really kind of mid. Oh, and speaking of the story... Was the Puppet Master busy? Let's all be honest here. Mr. Doll is the Puppet Master. Full stop. Granted, an only just different enough imitation, but a copycat all the same. He's similar enough to the infamous Fantastic Four villain that you almost wonder why Stan didn't just use the Puppet Master to begin with. Was he just not available? If anyone out there is up on their FF knowledge, please feel free to enlighten me, since I can't recall anything that would keep him from just being the villain here. After all, at this point, it wouldn't be the first time that villains from one book have crossed over to another book. It's especially notable in this story because, so far, Iron Man in particular has been notoriously removed from the Marvel Universe as a whole. Rarely ever guest appearing in any part of the continuity where other heroes are concerned, except perhaps as only a passing mention or a name drop. For example, somebody needs to defeat villain A using a new techno device Y created by Tony Stark. That kind of thing. In fact, he's only just started to interact with the greater Marvel Universe, having as of this issue very recently appeared as a member of a certain brand new super team we'll be talking about in the upcoming Point One episode, which, if I've timed it right, should be available around the same time as the one you're currently listening to. Apologies in advance if it's delayed. I have no confidence in my ability to release two episodes simultaneously, but 
We're going to find out together. As is, using this legally different but still somehow similar variant of a more successful villain makes Mr. Dog come across as a knockoff dollar store variant of the Puppet Master, and a pretty poor one at that. He doesn't even actually control people, per se, but rather he uses fear and coercion to make people do what he wants. On page 14, he states in no uncertain terms that he gained his powers, quote, panel 3, In Africa, I stole the secret of this magical little figurine from a witch doctor who was foolish enough to befriend me. So, a white dude stole something from a black man and presumably had said black man dispatch for his troubles just so he can take all the credit for something he didn't come up with. Right. This doesn't have poor optics at all. And what does the guy do with this mysterious power? He uses it to torture and coerce rich tycoons into handing their fortunes over to him. The guy literally just wants to be rich, so his plan is to steal from rich people. I understand that some wealthy entitled punks have it coming, but dang dude, think bigger. Needless to say, I don't think we'll have to worry about seeing Mr. Doll again. Inappropriate workplace conduct between superiors and subordinates. To his credit, despite his infamous reputation as a ladies' man, as we've discussed in previous episodes, Tony seems appropriately uncomfortable with Pepper's advances while they're locked in the vault together on page 12, before he ditches her through a hidden exit to go play Iron Man. As her boss, he knows full well the unfortunate connotations yet he was still willing to use Pepper in his ruse to be alone and sneak away to go after Mr. Not Puppet Master. The officer guarding him from Mr. Doll's target threat notice sees no problem with leaving the two in a locked room together with no way out. And when left alone, Pepper, who has made her feelings for Tony very clear in previous issues, wastes no time glomping all over her boss seemingly blissfully ignorant of the inherent imbalance in power dynamics from a boss or supervisor associating with his subordinates in a manner decidedly inappropriate for workplace conduct. She goes from addressing him as her boss to first naming him in a single breath, and immediately after that calls him sweetheart. Whew. Dang, girl, slow down. While in 2023 lenses, it seems like Pepper is just thirsty. I would imagine a woman making such a forward advance towards a man would look very shocking to a 1960s audience. It's absolutely fascinating to me that, despite all we've learned about Tony and his reputation with women, it's Pepper who is clearly presented as the aggressor here. I seriously doubt that Stan and Co. were actively and intentionally trying to be that progressive, but it's still interesting to see the scene presented this way. This story also shows Pepper as appropriately ticked off for being forgotten and left in a locked vault. To my mind, it illustrates that just because she maybe likes her boss a little bit too much, it doesn't mean she's going to stand for getting walked over or dismissed so easily. This sequence, in hindsight, calls forward to a sequence of events from the first Iron Man film, known for kicking off the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where Pepper calls Tony out for similar behavior 
leaving her alone at a gala to go bust bad guys in Jensen's hometown after promising to bring her back a drink. Movie Pepper doesn't throw a tantrum like her comic counterpart, but she does kick back with some serious bite at the end when she reminds Tony that she hasn't forgotten this, and just because he just saved the city from Obatiah Stain, that doesn't mean he's off the hook. I think maybe if you hadn't seen it in a while, thanks to the deluge of MCU content in recent years, you may have forgotten how fierce Pepper was in this original showing. It's definitely fun to revisit and remember. Well, folks, we finally got our classic appearance. Our hero is looking sharp as ever. Let's see what kind of mischief awaits next for the new and improved Shellhead. Part 2. Aerial Superiority Issue Discussed, Tales of Suspense, number 49 The New Iron Man Meets the Angel The feature story in TOS number 49 is credited as written by Stan Lee, penciled by Steve Ditko, inked by Paul Rainman, and lettered by Sam Rosen. This is the first account within the confines of Iron Man's individual story in which he interacts with the greater Marvel Universe as it was then, as a whole. I specify within the confines of Iron Man's individual story because at this point in time, he was actually an active serving member of one of Marvel's newest super teams, and had been for a little while. You all know the one. Look forward to episode 7.1 for that story, coming right up. In this little story, Iron Man dukes it out with the X-Men, the Angel. That's pretty much it. It's basically just, yeah, we got this other book you might be interested in, so here's us promoting it. And there's not much else to it. But in good faith, we're going to go ahead and look at it anyway. Our opening splash page depicts an aerial struggle between our boy Showhead and the Angel, civilian name Warren Worthington III student at Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters and member of the super team known as the X-Men. Read Professor Charles Xavier's Band of Child Soldiers. <laughs> the Angel boldly declares that the sky is his element and that Iron Man doesn't stand a chance, to which Iron Man replies that he's wrong and he's willing to bet his life on it. The trauma. <laughs> Typically, the X-Men are generally seen as heroic, so why in the world is the angel attacking our boy anyway? I guess we're going to find out. Our story begins proper as we see the angel flying above the main factory of the still-yet-to-be-named Stark Industries. He muses about taking a shortcut to reach Xavier's school by flying over the factory. I guess he's late for class. Admittedly, I'm not an X-Men reader. But I know enough to where I was under the impression that all of the students lived at the school. And if this is the case, then it begs to wonder where in the world he was prior to this incident. Regardless, the angel seems stoked to see Iron Man in the flesh, rather in the armor, below him on the factory grounds waving to him. Since he is so high up, however, and doesn't have super hearing, he doesn't hear Iron Man yelling at him to stay back. The factory is conducting a test detonation of a nuclear nature, Way too close to the city, mind you. Good job not doing your homework, 60s Marvel. And he is concerned that the angel could be caught in the explosion and injured, so he decides to activate his jet boots and fly up to meet him halfway. For some reason, Angel thinks that Iron Man is just anxious to meet him for some reason. 
but then notices he's trying to shoo him away. He can't figure out why for the life of him until Boom goes to dynamite. Or, in this case, atomic explosion. Iron Man's armor effectively shields him from the explosion and resulting radiation, but the angel takes the full brunt of the radioactive fallout and is very lucky he wasn't thrown out of the sky. However, the excess radiation in his system causes a sharp personality shift, making the normally heroic angel rather villainous and cruel. He flies off so Iron Man can't catch him, and sure enough, he flies so fast and so high that Iron Man's jet boots sputter out and he falls from the sky. He activates a magnetic field just in time to break his fall, but he still busts through a roof of one of his factory buildings. He returns to his lab, informs Pepper, as Tony of course, that he isn't to be disturbed, and begins repairing his armor. A short time later, we see the X-Men, in this case, the earliest iteration of the team, consisting of Scott Summers, aka Cyclops, Jean Grey, aka Marvel Girl, Bobby Drake, aka Iceman, and Hank McCoy, aka The Beast, who is not blue and furry yet and therefore significantly less cool. And they are absolutely flabbergasted as the personality-shifted angel has arrived at Xavier School to inform them that he's quitting the team, that they are lightweights, and he's gonna go hang out with the real bad boys. They have a scuffle as they try and bring him back down to Earth. Let it be known that their smart idea to restrain their friend was to fight him. They don't seem to have much luck in restraining him, even though they outnumber him four to one. Some team. After a quick check-in with Tony, who has now repaired his armor, we abruptly return to the book stealers, I mean the X-Men, who have proven inept at reigning in their friend, who flies away just as Professor Charles Xavier rolls on in and reveals that he was doing his usual creepy psychic eavesdropping thing, so he knows everything about Angel's turn of crazy. He tries to reach out to him telepathically, but Angel brushes him off, intent on joining up with more hardcore mutants, the evil ones. Presumably meaning Magneto's brotherhood, though he doesn't state as much in his many words. It's left intentionally vague for some reason. The professor orders Cyclops to attempt to contact the Avengers, the very first mention of them in this book so far as well as the first mention of our actual protagonist of this book being a part of them. But they all seem preoccupied with their civilian lives at the moment. Except, of course, for our boy Anthony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, a.k.a. the protagonist of this book, even though the story is trying its best to make you forget that for some reason. Tony receives the call from the X-Men and makes up an excuse to remove himself from his current work, leaving Happy and Pepper to have another verbal sparring match with one another, as they do. Tony knows the call is about the Angel, and it must be serious if the X-Men, or all people, want the help of the Avengers. After all, he knows that the X-Men are notoriously isolationist and don't particularly care about matters that don't concern them, and that they seemingly refuse to get involved in the dealings of the outside world. Tony decides that if the other Avengers aren't available, then he'll just settle this matter by himself. After all, he feels responsible for what happened to the Angel, so he feels obligated to clean up his own mess. He armors up and sets off to find the wayward X-Men. Speaking of the devil, the Angel is flying around seemingly aimlessly, 
wondering how to contact the evil mutants to join up with them. Hilariously, he says it like it's a generic thing, like all evil mutants are part of some club. But I'm just going to keep assuming he specifically means the Brotherhood for my own sanity. He decides to blow up some dynamite from a nearby construction site in the air and in the water near a cruise ship to use as a signal of sorts. But all he does is draw the iron attention of everyone else in the area, including Iron Man, who arrives just in time to call the cops off and convince them to let him talk the angel down. However, the angel has had it up to here with our hero, so he decides to teach him a lesson, as far as he's concerned, and a scuffle ensues. Wits are matched, doors are busted down, and in the end it doesn't really matter too much. The important part is that Iron Man decides it's worth it to put his life on the line in a last minute gambit by flying at top speed right at Angel, grabbing him by the shoulders, and reaching his highest possible elevation until his jet boots sputter out again and he begins losing altitude. And by losing altitude, I mean falling to his death. This is our, at this point, once an issue reminder that Anthony Stark is a self-destructive thrill-seeker with harmful tendencies that border on damn near suicidal. <laughs> the idea behind this little gambit is that the shock of watching him at terminal velocity as he crashes to the pavement below would be enough to bring Angel around and out of his radiation-induced evil funk. And wouldn't you know it, it actually works. The Angel snaps out of it as he decides he can't just watch the guy who did nothing but try to help him turn into an iron pancake and dashes forward, hoping to catch him in time. Which he does. Upon landing on the ground, Iron Man explains to the authorities and to the Angel that, due to being infected by the SI nuclear test, Angel shouldn't be held responsible for his prior reckless vandalism. The X-Men arrive in time to collect their wayward teammate, and Professor X telepathically tells Iron Man that he is grateful for his assistance with Angel, and that he is in his debt, and makes a promise to repay him someday, mirroring his prior statement by Cyclops just before the X-Men departed that Iron Man can call on them anytime. Crossover promotion or shameless plug? Admittedly, this story does do a few very important things in the greater scheme of Iron Man's story. The first thing it does is make the very first mention in Tales of Suspense of Iron Man being part of the Avengers, which at this time has only been active for just a short time. The Avengers, I think, are much more well-known and renowned nowadays thanks to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We're going to go into much more depth about Iron Man and the Avengers in episode 7.1, where we're going to do a deep dive into the first few stories looking specifically at Iron Man's place amongst Earth's Mightiest Heroes as a founding member of the team. So we're going to stick a pin in this for now. Bringing the X-Men on board as well also cements our boy's place as an active figure in the greater Marvel Universe and not just a passive mention. As a side note, another fun thing Tales of Suspense 49 does as a whole is it is the first to contain a side story that details events happening in the greater Marvel Multiverse as it is narrated by Watu, better known as The Watcher. Remember, this is still an anthology book after all. But this series isn't about The Watcher. I just thought that was an interesting little piece of trivia. To be quite honest with you, 
I personally think this is one of those early examples I mentioned a few episodes back of Iron Man's book being used to promote other books or tell weird or out of place stories and ideas that writers don't want to taint other books with. After all, the way the story is framed makes it feel like there are more pages with Professor X's kids on them than the actual title character of the book. It might not be the case, but all the same, the focus is clearly on the X-Men and not our boy. Another thing that will sadly keep happening in this book, even to the modern age. I can't help but feel, dear listener, that it makes Iron Man feel like an afterthought in what is supposed to be his story. Is this a good faith crossover or just a shameless plug? And why use Iron Man at all, who's clearly out of place here, as a character who has been notoriously removed from the greater Marvel canon, to promote another book that's so clearly different from his own thematically? Unfortunately, only the original creators really know, so we can only take a guess. Well, I'm on this note. The X-Jerks! Okay, I kid, but only just slightly. I try not to make it too harsh or obvious, but I still think maybe it's pretty clear if you couldn't figure out that I don't particularly care for the X-Men. I didn't grow up reading them, and I didn't watch the popular 90s animated series growing up, so I have no real nostalgia for the team like many of my generation do. I paid little to no attention to the early 2000s movies as they were coming out, and to this day, I haven't not watched them all all the way through yet, having only seen bits and pieces here or there. And I only watched the more recent films with the express goal of finishing the first class saga. And I took my sweet time at that. Because I heard that Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix were hot messes. Granted, it was in a way that amused me enough to check them out eventually. But, yeah. Yeah, they, they really are hot mess movies. <laughs> to be honest, the only reason I bothered was just so I could say I finished that saga. And because first class rules. Especially due to it being a 1960s period piece set against the backdrop of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Contrary to a lot of comic book and comic movie fans, I personally enjoy the quote-unquote political crap. All that aside, with a few exceptions, within the greater scale of the Marvel Universe, the X-Men come across to me as kind of a little snobby, self-absorbed jerks who really only deal with their own business, but then want to blame others for their problems, even when they refuse to ask for help, because they see it as their own problem to solve as much as it's someone else's fault. And I'm not really impressed by their refusal to lift a hand for others in times of turmoil, seeing it as none of their business and not their problem, until it becomes their problem. See Civil War. The comic version, mind you. I also find them a poor metaphor for marginalized peoples and civil rights, as if stripped of their powers, a great majority of the more well-known affiliated characters would just be regular-looking white guys with few very notable exceptions, most of those being recent to the last 20 years or so. Now, before you turn off this podcast, let me also openly admit that I may have grossly misinterpreted the X-Men and affiliated characters as a group due to my own lack of experience with the material. But as an outsider looking in, I can't really help how I feel about that, and nothing I've encountered in my reading so far has compelled me to read any of the affiliated books, as they all just come across as self-righteous and boring. All this to say is, it kind of irritated me with how they were used to co-opt Iron Man's story so the focus was on them and not Iron Man. I know the intentions were likely harmless, but knowing how he's treated in later years, 
To me, in hindsight, I can't help but be just a little wary in seeing this as the beginning of a common concerning thread. So, to summarize, Iron Man risked his life to save one of their team, and the X-Men decide that, hey, this Iron Dude is alright. With Cyclops promising that the X-Men will come to his aid if he calls, and Professor X reiterating that he'll pay back his debt to him. Will they keep their word and assist our dear Shellhead when he finally does call in that favor? We'll come back to this in the next episode, so keep this in mind for now, dear listener. Thank you all very much for joining me for episode 7. This feels like a strange place to leave our hero, but we aren't quite done with him just yet this week. Before we move forward in our story, we're going to take a quick detour and backtrack a bit for episode 7.1, as we take a look at Avengers numbers 1-4 through and explore the first few adventures of Iron Man as part of the iconic super team. And next week, episode 8 will return us to our regularly scheduled program, Continuing our walk through Iron Man's journey with Tales of Suspense number 50, where, finally, we will meet the villain who could easily be considered Iron Man's number one arch nemesis. All I'm gonna say is, get ready, because it's about to get real. In the meantime, please follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And tell your family, friends, or whoever you think may be interested. Remember, sharing is caring. As always, the intro and outro theme is Breakdown by Kevin McLeod. Until next time, my name is Marissa, and you've been listening to the Shining Armor Podcast, the show hosted by a comic book newbie who likes Marvel comics and just wants to talk about Iron Man. Stay safe and be good, y'all.